This week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a look. Today's guest needs no introduction. He's the man, the myth, the legend, the goat, Marv Dunphy. Oh, there he is. D-Hunt. What's up? What's going on? D-Hunt. Hi, Marv, you good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a little worried, wasn't here from you guys, you know? No, 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 I'd never <laughs> leave you hanging. What do you have there in the background? Is that to celebrate the 50 years? Uh, yeah, I've got John Wooden right here. Mr. Burley, 50 years. Right. Well, I see my name on it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing? Good. What's new with you guys? Same old. We get to play some volley here, some women's volley here in two weeks for us. So that's definitely new. Awesome. What a coach, what are you doing now? Because you said you don't really have a schedule. You're just kind of hanging out. But you're ahead of Emeritus, yeah? Yeah. Uh, you know what? Yeah, I don't have a real schedule. But uh, David lets me stay in this old office. And uh, – at first, uh, I thought, hey, David, this is the uh, office for the head coach of men's volleyball. I get in here. And uh, actually, I started to maybe even downsize. And uh, and he said, Marv, he said, the players feel comfortable with you here. You know their families, you know the alums. And uh, just hang in there. And I think it was a, a good call and uh, a good call for me. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's working out and um so staying in touch with the alums the the golf tournament uh you usually have about 40 some guys for whatever reason it's something we can do uh so we had 78 guys golf in the fall and uh probably made about i at the golf tournament awesome. and uh you know that 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 video project that we did matt how many matches have you watched of uh your, your time? Uh, there's not a lot of my time, but the guys before me, I've gone through all of Winder and Paul Carroll's matches. Okay. And now I'm just working on Rooney's. I'm just working my way back slowly. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm having yeah. a good time with it. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, that took over a year for that company to do that because they had to be copied real time. And, uh, but the feedback we got was pretty good. So, uh, to get access, you had to contact David, correct? Right. Yeah. So I asked them the next day, I'm not high tech, right? So, you know, the guys are contacting him and, uh, 
And I said, the next day, I said, how many guys checked in with you? Over 150, the second yeah, day. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, you know, all of a sudden, uh, guys are coming out of the woodwork and saying, hey, you know, I, hey, I, I, I need to make a contribution to this. This is really cool. This is me back in the day. My kids can see. And, uh, and, and also what it uh, ignited was um, some guys said, hey, we have some old stuff that uh, from a cable TV outfit, it's maybe VHS or whatever, uh, that wasn't you know like on my wall here for a while in storage. And uh, so it's gonna uh, initiate another round of uh, putting this stuff together and, and getting it copied and getting it out and probably maybe even have more from your era, who knows? If I'm lucky, that'd be great. Who doesn't like watching themselves every once in a while? But no, it's been awesome. Just also how different each gym is too, just from when I played at Stan Sheriff or when I played in the field house and how it looked then, how it looks now. And then obviously the volleyball is just, I watched an alumni match actually with George Romain in it and everything. Cause I remember that was a historic match. Cause I think Alex was telling me that some guy started chirping at George Romain and George Romain said, not today kid. And he just, gave them the business after that yeah it, it made uh i remember that well and uh yeah talk a little bit of trash and uh and george what what the f and uh and uh, it 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 changed everything and uh and for me kind of you know you want to respect the people that went before you you don't want to talk trash though especially george sure. yeah. yeah alex said it wasn't a lot of fun after that it was just a one-man show yeah Right. No, it was cool. And Craig Buck, Craig Buck was playing. I don't know how old Craig Buck was at that point, yeah. but he was still killing everybody. And I actually, so Bo Daniels was the one telling me that said he could never set it fast enough for Craig Buck, and he just kept telling him faster, faster. And so at one point, Bo grabbed it and threw it at Craig, and Craig said, "Good, that's that's what I need." Yeah, you know, so Craig. Uh, and actually, Matt, I, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, just pass, set, hit quick, both of you guys, and uh, pass, set, hit quick. And uh, uh, it's not a lost art, but I, I don't, I see people playing fast, but uh, I'd like to see the, the middles involved a little bit more. And uh, so with Craig, his load was up and you couldn't set him too fast. He was ready to go. And uh, and also when you're up there ready to go, if it's low, you can still get on it as opposed to guys that, you know, kind of have a lower draw, the, uh, I'll say, Hey, set me higher. And you know, it has to be pretty good. So what Matt, without taking up this whole time, um, pass set hit quick, uh, give me that sequence for you. So as a setter, what, what do you watch? Do you watch the passers arms, the ball coming off it? Do you, you want to pick that up pretty quick? Or is that something that you don't really think about? I think the most, most important thing for me is trajectory. Well, as soon as it touches, how high is it going? So that I know how fast I have to establish myself. And then quick is easy after that. If I establish myself and I'm straight up and down or whatever it is, or even if I'm on the ground and I'm established early, then I can perceive everything. But it's these ones that the low fast ones where you're moving and everything's kind of flowing, I guess, 
those are a little bit tougher. But if I have time, and I can see the ball and its trajectory, then setting quick for me is a lot easier. All right. So now, where, where do you, uh, where do you, what do you want to see from your middles? What do you want to hear from your middles? And uh... yeah, I'm really auditory. So for me, I need everybody to say things. So even if it's, yeah. it doesn't matter who it is, but if even if we said that we're going to run the gap, then I want to hear you say gap. Just in case, I just want complete confirmation, and then. Yeah, I'm big on just getting your arm up because I remember you telling me, uh, I think it was Stand good. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That and Rod Wild was really big on, then you can just hit this window. Yeah. So as long as I can see your arm, then I just have to hit the window or I just hit your hand and then I know it's in the right spot. But yeah, you were talking about um, this Polish setter from, what was it, 1966, he was the setter? Uh, no, 70, yeah, in the early Yeah, 72, and I, I mean, you you were there, so you tell the story about him with these kids blindfolded. <laughs> no, he he, uh, he just wanted the middles uh, up, you know, so he could, uh, yeah, set up to him. And what he would do, uh, and when he came here and worked with us at a camper and, and then at Pepperdine for a year, He'd set the ball straight, and you better you better be up to pick it off. Otherwise, it's going to the ceiling. That's the way he trained it. And uh, yeah, then the second guy through would call. You know what uh, what the Russians were doing. You know if they were committing, he would call something, and uh, they'd set the second option. So they were ahead. He was uh, he he was like you. He just said that all five guys and there's no libero. Call it. Everybody just call it. And then he would hear it, you know, and uh, set the right guy. Yeah, that's way easier for me personally. If a guy says I want to go or a shoot or whatever it is, then I just know. Then I can easily adapt to that. And so we have a plan, and then you just change it on the fly if we need to change it on the fly. But just tell me. I'm big on just tell me what you need, and then it's over. Yeah. So the uh, uh, where where are you locating this ball? Are you doing the work for the hitter? Or are you putting it to the hitter's midline and letting him do that? And uh, and how far you know how far away from uh, the net or from you do you want this guy? Uh, on a tight quick of a meter and a meter. Okay. But yeah, I'm kind of. There's a really fine line for me. There's a fine line of how fast and how slow you can go with the middles. So I think when you're close in proximity, it, if you're on the net, then you can pr probably go as fast as you want. Right. Cause then I can just shoot it up to you and you're probably going to beat the other middle off the ground unless they're completely in the air. Once you start moving off of the net, then it depends on the, it's these angles now. Right. So it's not a meter and a meter. Then it starts becoming kind of, like a lazy Susan, if I start moving this way, then you start going a little bit more towards the net. And I remember back in 2012, um, with the men's team, they were running a lot of strictly a one ball offense, a tight quick offense. And I remember guys were taking off from the three meter line, almost the same place where the pick was going. And for me, that kind of limits range personally is what I would think as a middle blocker. 
But yeah, it's kind of a pendulum for me. So as I come off, then you might have to start coming a little bit closer to the net. And I'll just I'll just give it to the middle, and it right in their midline. That's the Got easiest it. way for them for me. What about you, Jackie? Yeah, one uh, again, not to go on and on with this, but I'm always kind of curious. Um, sometimes setters, uh, maybe they're just a little cautious and it doesn't come out of their hands or maybe they get the yips, you know, it hasn't worked and they can't get it uh, consistently, uh, you know, to a sweet spot for the quick hitter. What, what do you think works in terms of working with a setter like that? Jackie, put on your coach's hat. <laughs> um, I just tell them if they're going to screw it up, like screw it up big. You know, if we're trying to make this ball go fast, then go way too fast and see what that feels like and kind of feel both ends of the spectrum. You know, what does too slow feel like? What does too fast feel like? What does too tight feel like? What does too far off feel like? Um, and, yeah, kind of just go go through the badness with them until uh, hopefully they come out of the yip stage, as you said. Yeah, not, not all – you know, it's not for everybody, but I, it's uh, – I don't know. I, I see it quite a bit where they, uh, they they feel like they have to make it perfect. And Terry, uh, Danny Luck in Alberta uh, said that what he did, he made it an external uh, cue or key. And where he, he, just the word I think he used was, uh, see, he, he would tell his uh, setters impulse. And that freed them up to just throw it up there. And uh, uh, I don't know. I'm just always kind of curious because invariably I would go to a club practice, a high school practice, and I would hear the coach say, higher, set it higher, set it higher. And, you know, the quick hitter would say that, and the kid would just, you know, it, it almost tighten him up and he would set it lower and barely come out of his hands. Yeah. And so what do you, what do you see with the middle attacking in today's game? Um, you said you would like to see it set more often, but would you also like to see it at a faster tempo? No, just uh, probably set more often, you know, uh, yeah, it just, yeah, just more often. And I know, you know, everybody's enamored with speed or, you know, maybe a big, a big is a, a big play. And uh, uh, I, I just think it stresses uh, uh, the block a little bit more um, if you, you know, if you have a few, another option, you know. Absolutely. For sure. I'm with you on, I, I also think speed is overrated. I think if you're smart and you're perceiving the block well enough, I know a lot of great setters. I've seen a lot of great setters that run a very normal ball and they just make the right decisions and guys are one-on-one, -on -one, guys are none on one, you know, and they just I think this, this decision-making process for me matters a lot more and tempo, at least in the men's game. You can only go so fast, and with the way guys are serving nowadays, you can't really go. You're playing most of your ball at three meters anyways. Oh. If you, I mean, perfect pass for me now, as I get older, is at a meter and a half off the net, two meters. I can absolutely live with that. Like, this is great. Bad passes are seven, eight meters now. Is even from four, five, six meters. If you have great athletes, they have angles to work with. They can deal with the ball pretty easily. 
if they're smart, they'll recycle and they'll just abuse the block. Right. You find yourself sending a lot tighter now and just letting the hitters jam and uh depends. It's all about it's their character. Some guys don't feel comfortable with balls close and they get scared or they have the I mean some guys just have the yips because they sprained an ankle before. But last year in France, everything was tight. We always put everything tight and we just let them work from there. They want to recycle, yam and throw fine but this year it's more keep it a meter off the net and if they want to recycle they can but just give them options yeah, so, yeah i think it's just personnel based yeah yeah so going back to the middles i want to hear this from both of you but, but let's say uh you don't have an all-american middle and but you still have a starting middle that does a good job maybe defensively how do you get the medium middle offensively in the game or when do you use that middle? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for me, uh, it's historically the, uh, what I was, I got into volleyball kind of late and, uh, uh, but it seemed like the, the tactics were, Hey, establish the middle, establish the middle. And, uh, uh, and I, I've always felt, uh, I, I want to go somewhere else first and, and see what the block does in the first couple of plays and, uh, and, and then, you know, explore, you know, uh, the middle and the, all these other options um, versus you try to establish the middle and try to establish the middle. If it doesn't work, then all of a sudden you, you're going to be pretty patterned. And uh, so I, I want to see how, how well the block does, but the, um, Actually, Jackson, I think maybe uh, if if it's a tight quick that doesn't work, you know, try uh, getting the quick hitter away in some sort of gap, and uh, uh, maybe that would be a, a you know a, a something in the middle of the court, kind of in the middle where she might or he might be a little bit better. Um, and uh, but I, I would say you know one of the things um, I, I want the middles to prep to hit. Because uh, sometimes if it gets a little bit off uh, and it's a little bit left, a little bit right, or in transition, they're just looking to throw it down. And uh, I always want them to, I want to teach them and, uh, and have them prep to hit the ball. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure I answered your question though. <laughs> What's your question? Maddie, you go and then we'll both answer his question. Okay. No, I, you brought up some really interesting points about uh, yeah, just like a less effective offensive middle. You've got to get them in the offense somehow. When do you do that? How do you do that? Or do you not do that? Well, I mean, it. Uh, well, you've got some experience with this because that 08 team, you got, I mean, you guys got to a championship and it wasn't the most offensively middle rounded squad. And, yeah. Well, that's because we had a center hitting middle, you know. <laughs> I think we set our middles three times in that and in four sets. <laughs> yeah. So there's your answer, Jackson. Don't set them. Yeah. yeah. No, we didn't. We said, hey, you guys, you guys, we'll try to knock them off the net, and you guys block them, and and that that's just sometimes you have to do what uh, you have to do with your personnel. But uh, I guess my question is, is is the middle can the middle hit behind the center? uh away from the center tight and uh 
uh, yeah, I mean, if they if they just can't deliver, you know, you, you can't set them very often, and uh, <laughs> just try to keep them with a good attitude and keep going, you know. Yeah, for sure. I just like movement. So, some people really like just being close in proximity to you, and I don't know why. Right, where a guy. Matt Tarantino, for example, he was good at hitting tight quicks, but he liked movement and he liked space. So he was just better over space. Whereas Nikola Antonievich or Mitch Penning, they were good close in proximity. You know, so because it, I, for whatever reason, they just weren't so good over space and time. Right, because Mitch had this long lever that he really had this long draw that it needed to be in the zone pretty perfectly for him to get on it. And he was young at the time and Nick had really short arms and he didn't have a lot of hang time. So for him, he could take it right out of your hands and put it to the ground. But if it was over time, then again, that ball had to be on time and right into his hand. So, and those guys are too, I mean, they're, they're good players, but you'd probably call them average middle blockers, those guys. So for me, I just had to think of how can I keep them engaged if maybe this isn't going to be their night. But when it's their night and you're playing a Santa Barbara that's going to read every single time, that's their night for sure. Because when they're matched up and you have Josh front row and you know they're not going to help, then it's their night, man. Now it's time to take over. And I remember for example, we played SC my senior year and the scouting report was, they're always going to help when our O2 was front row, Scott Ryan, but they're never going to help when Josh Taylor's front row. So Micah would leave and go get Josh every time. So then we would just run gap go and they couldn't do anything. And our O2, I mean, our M2 would just destroy. So I think part, part of it's probably just the scouting report if it allows for it sudden. And if it doesn't, then but that goes for everybody. You know, Parker had nights where he didn't get the ball a lot. Josh had nights where some, he maybe wasn't going to get the ball as much as he could, but he just played a win. So, remember uh, with Tino, you could just uh, little loopy, you know. He, yeah. he wasn't, yeah, he, he wasn't lightning, so just loop it up there and you know let those long levers go get it. But Jackson, answer your own question. What do you do? Uh, I try to throw him a bone in transition once in a while. If you're, if the dig is off center, but still a good dig towards the net. Um, just try to find some space for them between the block and go for it once in a while, just so that middle's thinking about the middle a little bit. But I, I think the overall thing is what you're talking about. If you have a guy on the pin that needs to get the ball for us to win, that's what you do. Yeah. I think the important thing is you better be, uh, you know, let, let that middle know and uh, let the center know, you know, and don't get frustrated. You know, there's got to be some buy-in, you know, but I think it's, uh, yeah, just tactically, you got to let them know what you're, what you're doing. And uh, so you're somewhat on the same page. For sure. Yeah. I remember Winder, Winder was the one that told me, because we weren't, this guy just started following Tino left and right, because he had three weeks in a row where he hit 750. So everybody started following Tino everywhere. So I said, Winder, I want to set quick, but I can't. And he said, yeah, you don't have to do it inside out, but that doesn't mean you can't do it in transition. 
And I had never thought of those two things as different parts of volleyball. I just thought set quick means set quick in any point in time, right? So then I learned how to separate those two things and think, all right, if I can't do it inside out, then I'm going to let them know that they have to be really ready in transition because I'm going to throw something to them. And it might not be pretty. It might be a ball from four meters, but you're going to get it and you're going to have to dunk it or do something just to keep them thinking. Because I'm big on setting quick, whether it works or not, I'm just going to do it just to make them think that it's still a threat. And in college, you can usually get away with it more than you can at pro or at a higher level for me. Because in pro, they're smart enough where they say, just leave them, just leave them, don't worry about it. But in college, guys get antsy and then all of a sudden they know somebody's getting a lot of balls and they don't think about how successful those balls are. So then it's just, just give them a bone, let, let them think whatever they want and keep following them. And we know it's not working, but let's just keep moving forward. Matt, I, yeah, there's a, a service received. Everybody's making their plans. Everybody looks at uh, rotation by rotation, good pass, medium pass. What do they do? All this information and a little bit in, in trance, but uh, you know, they usually don't have uh, very sophisticated plans in, in trans, trance. So that's a that's a good time to uh, go, go quick, if, if at all possible. Do you guys, when you're talking to setters, do you guys, so I learned, I took this from Finland, if the middle moves to his left to go block, I just keep him on a gap. And if he moves to his right, and he can go one push or back one, whatever, but something close so that they're not sprinting everywhere. It just makes it easy. Do you guys talk about that stuff with your setters or your middle or with your middles, I guess, in transition? That, that's kind of like for David Hunt, you know? I, <laughs> I, I'm in the stands now checking it out. Well, did you? Well, I, for, I mean, I get Yeah. Did you when you were coaching? Uh, you know what? So what you're saying, uh, I hear you saying that, hey, I, the middles, can they, I know if they can get there if the pass is here. And uh, yeah, I, I, probably not so much. Just run. Yeah. Middle's job is to be available and uh, yeah, wherever it is. Sure. Jackson? Uh, no, I've never had a a conversation like that. I mean, in, in scouting, we'll see what the middles do and we'll try to come up with uh, with a plan based on it, but nothing consistent like you're talking about. It just seems like everybody throws the game plan out the door as soon as they get soft touched. <laughs> you know, that's how, what I've always thought about it. Something that I've also started recognizing now is when setters run to four and set the long way, why aren't we told that we should just set the ball outside because they're not there? That might work. You know what I mean? Stuff, just really little stuff like that. That I mean, obviously, you just pick it up over time. But even sim just simplifying transition, for me, brings a lot of clarity. Because like I said, I'm really auditory. And when you play like abroad, then obviously, People don't speak your language or whatever it means. So if I can have a concrete plan and know 
what those guys are going to do. Then also the pick hitters know what's going to happen. And, you know, then it's just so much more clear for everyone. All right. Well, Marv, we got started off talking volley, but I want to hear how you got involved in volleyball originally. I know you grew up in uh, Topanga Canyon. Uh, yeah, I just want to hear how you got involved in volley and where did it go from there? Yeah, it, it uh, wasn't a traditional way. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I don't know your background, but Matt, you know, hey, his parents were highly involved and uh, and good players. And uh, and I, I think nowadays, you know, kids start playing, you know, club, high school, whatever. There was no uh, high school volleyball when I was uh, younger. And uh so there was kind of like two things. One, I was aware of the sport because at the end, uh, there was a 40 acre uh, ranch kind of at the end of this little dirt road where I grew up. A guy named Chuck Nelson bought that and he uh, made the 64 Olympic team as a volleyball player, right? So I was aware of it, um, but never, never really played until um, after, actually after Vietnam where I went to Japan as an exchange student and I saw volleyball and I saw it trained there pretty formal and uh, played there, uh, I don't know, once in a while that, that summer and uh, went back to Pierce College and started a men's volleyball team and uh, and yet recruited uh, at a few places and uh, went to, to Pepperdine and uh, I was ready to go to Santa Barbara of all places. Uh, uh, Rudy Sawara had recruited me there and uh, Bert DeGroote, one of the coaches at Santa Monica City College, who we played, said, hey, meet me at the Malibu feed bin at the bottom of Topanga PCH. And uh, so we met there and he goes, hey, they're opening this new campus up here in Malibu and uh, uh, they're going to have a men's volleyball program and Harlan and I are coaching. Uh, have you signed at Santa Barbara yet? And I said, no, but I will. His son was playing at Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara was good. I said, no, Bert, but I will. And he goes, well, don't. He says, we want to talk to you about going to, to Malibu. And, and that was a, turns out to be a real good move for me because I, I wasn't any good. You know, I could jump and uh, maybe hit quick, okay. Uh, but um, yeah, they, they were both really good guys. I, I learned uh, I learned a ton from both and uh, I, uh, I mean this in a good way. I learned uh, mostly what to, to do from Bert. And a lot of Harlan was, you know, passing, setting, whatever that I, I wasn't very skilled in. But I also had learned what, what not to do and, and the way that he uh, would, would treat uh, athletes sometimes. And, uh, and it was somewhat fear-based. Fear and um, I, so I learned uh, quite a bit on what not to do from Harlan and uh but I was lucky to get got into volleyball late to be around two guys that were really into volleyball and uh and uh Bert more so coaching I think Bert was more into coaching uh than Harlan Harlan was just a, a volleyball rat uh, so thanks, that's for, I well, thanks for starting that program at Pierce I went I went that's how I started my college career as well yeah, that was it was a fun time. You know, we uh, I, I remember uh, not to go on and on with that, but uh, I there was a guy uh, named Harry Wilson, and 
Chuck Nelson, the, the volleyball guy from uh, Topanga, he said, hey, you, you need to go talk to uh, Harry Wilson. So I went to his house in Encino and I, uh, I said, I knocked on the door actually. And I introduced myself and I said, hey, we're starting a volleyball program at Pierce and uh, we need 20 volleyballs. And he, he said, well, who sent you here? And I said, well, Chuck Nelson. And uh, who was with Wilson, I think, in the 64 Olympics and got 20 volleyballs and went to the, uh, I don't know, ASB Associated Student Body or something like that. And I said, we need $500 for, to be part of this league. And, uh, and we got it going and had a, had a blast. And uh, so then I think then we had to have a sponsor. We didn't have, uh, and the guy's name was Jerry Perry. He was a football guy. And uh, Ken was coaching basketball then, Ken Stanley. And uh, Jerry Perry was our sponsor, but he, he was, he wasn't there at our practices or matches, just uh, helped us with gym time. And they, they were fun times. And then Ken Stanley took it and it just went crazy. And uh, uh, he, he's one of my heroes. Ken is just, uh, he, he's the best. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to have him in the gym once in a while when I was at Pierce. We, we call him Big Daddy, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Uh, how, did, how did that relationship start for him coming to the volleyball gym? Oh, that's, that's a question for Ken. I, I don't, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, that, that'd be a good question. Uh, I, I don't remember. I don't remember the beginning, uh, that initial startup, but I remember him coming to watch our practices at Pepperdine and, uh, uh, he was into it, you know, and, uh, he, he was, uh, and is, you know, just a, a great, great person and a great coach. And, uh, you know, uh, the people that were there all, uh, there's, I think there's a reason they call him big daddy. He's like the second father to a lot of those guys. And, uh, and, and, you know, and he gave it to you straight. And I, I, I think that was, uh, what I admired the most, uh, in addition to his loyalty and friendship, whatever, uh, if somebody asked something, he was direct in a really good way. But you know what? You, you got to get him. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, he, he was a great basketball player. And I, I'll tell you this one story. So I spent some time with John Wooden, right? Yeah. And I asked Coach Wooden, I said, hey, did you know Ken Stanley? And he goes, did I know Ken Stanley? Ken played at USC. Yeah. Wooden's coaching at UCLA. And so Wooden is telling me this story about how tough Ken was. And uh, so they're playing at UCLA. I think it was the, the men's gym then or whatever. And Ken was a pretty rough and tumble guy and he uh, wouldn't uh, shaking his program at him. And uh, right during the game, he said, Stanley, uh, you're, you're nothing but a butcher. And uh, so the game's over and Ken runs up to Wooden and says, I've lost all respect for you as a coach, but more so as a person leaves. And uh, so Wooden, Wooden is telling me the story, Coach Wooden. He calls a too good, the, the SC coach, because they played back to back, I think those years, and uh, and said, hey, before we play again, can I talk with Ken Stanley? He said, absolutely. Wooden apologizes. They kind of bury the hatchet. They become lifelong friends. And uh, Stanley works at all of his camps and uh, uh, 
but it was pretty cool. You know, uh, how many guys, you know, uh, just wouldn't call a butcher, you know? <laughs> and it, it, yeah, Ken just played a, a real tough, uh, tough brand of basketball, but one wonderful guy and a, a great athlete. Um, I'll tell you this one story, one more story. Uh, we're at, uh, we have a Saturday at Pepperdine, kind of like this morning. And, uh, he wants to know how to pass that hit quick. He wants to know how to block. He, he wants to learn the game. He knows how to coach, but he just needs the tools on how to teach these things. So it's Jim McLaughlin, Rod Wild, myself, and we're here at Pep and we're going over video and saying, Hey, here are the keys and all that stuff. And so we're maybe three or four hours into it. And Ken said, Hey, let's get some exercise. So we go down to the gym and, uh, so it's going to be old guys, young guys. Well, we play, what do we play first? We played badminton. So Ken Stanley is all world badminton, right? And, and I, I know how to play a little bit. Rod and Jim are full of piss and vinegar, but they don't know how to play. <laughs> we work them. We work them and they, they yell at one another and, uh, uh, they're both kind of competitive, right? And so we, if, if you know how to play badminton and the enemy doesn't, it's over. So it was over. So then we said, hey, let's play, let's play basketball two on two. And Ken's pretty tough, right? And uh, th those guys don't have a chance. The, the, he would throw me the ball and he would screen out both of them. He'd hold his arms out. I mean, no, there's no ref there, right? So it got a little rough. And uh, same thing, Rod and Jim, just ragging on each other. And, you know, melting down as Ken just dominates him. Yeah, he was a good athlete. And uh, I, and actually, to this day, I think he's, I don't know, he's probably 80. I don't know if he has a gray hair yet. Just wow. wonderful man. That's awesome. Coach, when did you know you were going to get, when you were going to become a teacher or a coach? Did that cross your mind in university or did something happen post-college? You know what? I wasn't very sophisticated, kind of a woodshop guy. And uh, people often ask me, hey, uh, if you had to change, uh, you know, anything early on, what would you change? And uh, I, I will say nothing because I never imagined uh, then that I'd be with such great people over time and such great athletes and such great teams. Um, I, I never really thought of that. And uh, I think it was a little bit, hey, I, I want to uh, maybe teach coach, you know, get a degree in PE, something like that. Um, but it, there wasn't any one thing that just, you know, where the clouds parted and they said, hey, coach at Malibu um, and coach volleyball. Um, it was kind of evolved into it. And I, the big, uh, I think the really, uh, the really uh, significant event for me is when Bert and Harlan, when Bert was going to move to San Clemente and they invited me to help the program. And uh, that was great. But I'd done a little bit of uh, a little bit of teaching. I taught swimming at the Northridge Swim Club and whoever got the most kids to come back, uh, I think that it was a two, two week session. Whoever got the most kids to come back the following uh, session got a quarter an hour raise, right? And uh, and I worked there for two years, and I think 
every two weeks. I, I was near the top, and uh, and it was it's kind of funny because Wooden always says, "Hey, be the best that you could possibly be," you know, whatever. But I was, I, I didn't mind beating somebody else, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I was pretty lucky uh, to get with Bert and Harlan, and uh, I don't know. Then it started, you know. Uh, having some success and uh and I, I got into it and probably a little bit lopsided you know i didn't have too good a balance in my life you know it was all you know uh coaching and uh but i loved it yeah it's great yeah i mean so how long were you the assistant before you took over as the head uh i helped for two years and uh and then um yeah and so i got uh guy named Bob Thomas was, uh, made, he saw that he had some vision. He, he made it a full-time sport and a uh, uh, full-time position, I should say. And yeah. Harlan couldn't do that. And uh, and I don't know if Harlan and, and Bob Thomas, who was the AD at the time, I don't know if they saw uh, uh, eye to eye. And, and I know Bob had uh, a vision for the sport and uh, whether it was me or somebody else, uh, you know, there was going to be a, a probably a change at the head coaching position. Sure. So then you you started in '75 as the assistant. Yeah, '74, '75. Yeah. '75. So then you take over as a head. So that means within two years, you guys win a national championship match with Rod. You guys won it two years later. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. That's not. I mean, it is that two years, coach. It's pretty good. Do you think you would ever be in that position that early on in your coaching career? No, you know, and uh, I, you know, I've said this many times, the, uh, uh, I think if I had been better, we would have another banner or two in those early years. You know, you always feel like uh, that anyway, you know, and, uh, uh, but, and I don't think I messed up the uh, couple early teams, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I know as the years went on, I, I looked back and said, oh, man, I didn't even know what I was doing then, you know. Uh, How so? Uh, kind of from a modal learning standpoint, it wasn't until I uh, got to know Carl McGowan that I would train the guys better. Yeah. I, I, I think we had pretty good uh, talent when I uh, first started coaching. And, uh, uh, but... I don't know how much better uh, I got them or we got. And, uh, yeah, and then, you know, I had not too much time in the game, you know, and uh, probably an okay coach, but not technically, tactically as, uh, uh, as good as I, I, I could have been had I had a little more time in the, you know, in the sport. What? So then, what was your time like in the gym with the guys before meeting Carl? Because I remember you said, when you did you play for Moo Park or did you coach with Moo Park? No, he was uh, uh, so the fifty years of Pepperdine volleyball, right? So I've been I've somewhat been aware of everything for forty eight of those fifty. The first two years were on the LA campus, okay, and uh, that was with Moo Park, and uh, I. I didn't start until the uh, the campus opened here in '72 as a player, and uh, but I, I saw uh, him practice uh, uh, 
with actually the USA Women. And uh, I don't know if you're asking the Moot Park story, but uh, I'll tell you one. The, he was doing a, a coach on one and uh, the player was out there and all of a sudden the player's tired and couldn't get up, right? And he goes, hey, one more time, one more time. The player gets up and flops around, whatever, and then pretends like, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm exhausted. I can't get up or I can't do this and that. And he'd say, just one more time. And he'd do one more time for 20 minutes. And, uh, <laughs> and he would say, you know, he'd say, you see, he says, you do not die. This is only here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was the first I had seen something like that. And uh, but Harlan wasn't opposed to uh, working it pretty hard either. So there you go. Yeah, it seems like uh, as time goes on, I think I was not that I was the last generation because I'm sure Dave still works guys. But by the end of my generation, you weren't I don't think you were working guys the same way that I remember guys getting worked when I first walked in the gym. I definitely. Man, I, I think it's uh, Jack. You guys, jump, it, coach on one is outlawed nowadays, right? You can't do that. Yeah, it's called opportunity to improve now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You have to be. You have to be real careful with uh, the purpose of it and how hard you're going with them, or you can be having a conversation with the AD pretty quickly. Yeah, and even the Sandhill. I think you have to get written permission from the president to run that sand hill, you know? <laughs> What's a, do you, I know, what was the story about the kid who used to park in your parking spot and he started giving him coach on ones every day? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a guy named, uh, one of my favorite guys, Brad Carter. And uh, he had this little BMW that, you know, probably never had a speck of dirt on it. And uh, so he, you know, there's, couple of places that are good to park, no door dings and close to the gym, whatever. And, and I, if I didn't get here early enough, all of a sudden here's this BMW there and it was his. And, uh, so, uh, I just, we'd be on the, I don't know, three meter line to start with or end line. And uh, I'd say, Brad, you're out here. And I'd flop him around a little bit and he didn't know, nobody knew. And I just would do that and, uh, I'd work him pretty good. And, uh, it was a badge of honor, right? For him and then one day I, I i worked really hard and i said brad where'd you park and uh and he caught on and uh so the next day where did he park same place <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love it it is great yeah yeah no there's some i only remember a couple i remember evan actually evan dean not that he got worked hard he always he worked his ass off that kid I remember, we were, I remember we were in Fresno once and for in Culver just for our standard preseason tournament. I think it was my sophomore year. And he had the ball in your hands and he said, Evan, are you ready? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Evan, I'm asking you, are you ready? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he started off deep court by hitting Evan straight in the face. <laughs> and he said, Evan, I asked if you were ready. You said you were ready. He said, I'm alive. <laughs> we just started going. <laughs> yeah. George uh, George used to like, uh, uh, he'd say, you know, there's always kind of like some dog days in training, right? And he, and he would say, hey, Mark, there's a little gap for uh, this practice and to a match. And uh, I, I just want you to know I'm ready. 
And whenever he said that, you know, I'd be at the net and he'd be, you know, right back. And, you know, go after it just, and he would just smile. Right. And, uh, but I, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever hit Romaine in the head, uh, but uh, I remember that with uh, Evan. Nice. Good sport. So then, sorry, going back in time, then, so you win your, the first national championship, then you go on and then you have, I think quite possibly the best generation in Pepperdine history where you guys went second, second, first, first, right? Who was, was Fitzy the one that held everybody together on that team or on those teams? Uh, yeah, you know, there's, there were some unique characters on that team and, you know, these, uh, superior athletes, elite athletes, proactive athletes, they're, uh, they're pretty rare. And, uh, if you have one, you're, you're lucky. We had a couple and, uh, I, I, I remember talking to Alan Fox and all about all the qualities of, you know, elite athletes and, uh, superior athletes. And, and I said something like Alan, how many of these characters are there? And he goes, he thought for a minute, he goes, they're one in 10,000. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, yeah, so that that group was a pretty special group, you know, pretty uh, uh, good, good volleyball athletes and uh, competitive. And um, yeah, Fitz was, uh, yeah, he checked all those boxes for you know, a player you want, a player that gets it. And, uh, you know, we, we see that Matt and, and Jackson, you see that I think pretty early on in, in people, it's not like they come to Malibu and they'd learn how to be competitive or tough or elite, uh, proactive. I, I think we see that along the way and it's easy to see. And I think it's hard to develop those guys, but Fitz was unreal. Yeah. And, um, he didn't allow himself or his teammates to have a bad practice. And he, he knew all the right buttons to push for every guy. And, and the story I like to tell Matt, you've heard it before is that um, we're in the end of the season, maybe toward the playoff. And I got a call from a teacher saying, I need to talk to you about one of your players and kind of like upset. And, uh, and the situation was, you know, he said that you're playing UCLA tomorrow night uh, and that, told each student they had to be there and even told me it, it's tomorrow night in the stone i needed to be there and i i thought it was like something bad like he had done something with uh academics or whatever a misstep and uh so i was relieved and i said well tell me how how's he doing in your class and she says that's the problem he's not in my class <laughs> and this wasn't high school wasn't you know it was at Pepperdine and he was going around, he believed in himself and uh, the team so much. He'd go into these classes and say, Hey, you know, you got to come to this match. And, uh, and people would. And uh, so fast forward, we, you know, 20, 30 years later, actually it was last year or two years ago, we had a, invited the alumni back here. Right. So Fitz is going to come down from Santa Barbara and, uh, and he says, Hey, you know, uh, what time's the event? And I said, well, the match is at seven, but we're gathering at five thirty or six and so on and so forth. And he says, he says, they have any classes at six? And he was ready to do it again. But those, I mean, you get uh, one of those guys and you're on your way. And uh, yeah, they, they, I think he was a big part of that. And uh, 
but there's pretty good talent, you know, Rob Scott, Bob Snoverly, Jeff Story uh, was part of that, and uh, Troy Tanner. I think that's the most amazing part about when I learned about Fitzy and when I met him for the first time is that I don't think anybody outside of the waves will ever know who Mike Fitzgerald is. But if you're a wave, you think of him as the greatest wave that's ever walked the, yeah. and, um, the Malibu campus because there was Jeff and Mr. Bertlick and Steve Friedman and all these guys that are all Americans. But it, that's why it's amazing that Fitzy held it together. It's yeah. Like, you know, they kept all those guys in check. And they yeah. ended up being gold medalists. You guys know this. The uh, teams are special. It's something that you'll never experience again. And, you know, you don't have to win a gold medal or NC2A. It doesn't have to be that. It's just teams are pretty special. And uh, and, and he, he really knew uh, all, you know, what made teams great. And, uh, and like I said, he knew all the buttons to push for uh, every guy. Some guys needed a, uh, a hug. Some guys needed a headlock and, and, you know, Fitz was the, the guy, I think, like you were saying, yeah, there, you know, there were some good guys around him, but uh, yeah, Mike made sure they're going the right way. Was it difficult for you to leave and go to the Olympic team knowing you had such a great generation of guys there? Uh, you know what? My, uh, actually, Matt, that was the second time. The, the tough time was, uh, and the first time I left to get my doctorate because uh, I'd been an assistant for a couple of years and then the head coach for a couple of years and uh, <clears throat> we were good. And, uh, and I, I think I was teaching full time and, you know, coaching and, uh, and I think I was earning $9,000 and that's even maybe teaching in summer school or something like that. And I remember going to, Paradise Cove and, you know, saying, Hey, you know, I want to rent a trailer or what does it cost to buy a trailer? I couldn't even pay for parking to get in the parking lot, you know, and what I was making. And, uh, uh, so I, 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 I had to make a tough decision, uh, you know, to, uh, get my doctorate. And, uh, that was pretty tough because everybody was coming back the next year. We'd won it and everybody was coming back. And, uh, so that group is, uh, they let me know that, you know, that, hey, I, I bailed out, <laughs> you know. But we're, that group is pretty tight. We had, a, as you know, I'm, I'm, you know, making sure that guys like you, Matt, thanks for giving back to the program. But so a couple of years ago when I uh, stopped coaching and I started like chatting with these guys to get back to support and uh, put money into the endowed fund, at 78 team, every guy on that team gave back. Uh, yeah, just, uh, you don't get a hundred percent of anything anymore. And, uh, uh, that, that was pretty cool. For sure. Was it going back to that team? Was it Troy? Was he the one that ended up spraining his ankle and then you guys had to take him to the back? Yep. This is an amazing story, Jackson. <laughs> just story time. I, I thought we were going to talk volleyball here. No, 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 no. I, no these stories are all world, man. These are yeah. all world stories. He's, he's a defensive back at uh, uh, in high school, right? And, uh, you know, good athlete. 
and so a good player and he said and he, he sprained his ankle in practice and the training room at that time was right off of uh the gym floor and uh he strained it sprained it pretty good so we take him in and there's this little trash can that's a couple feet high and uh fill it full of ice and water and uh put his whole foot in that uh, bucket of trash can of ice water right and then the training room was down at the, the bottom of the building next door so we went and got the trainer and uh we came back the trainer was tj burn and we walked back and all of a sudden here's ice water all over the floor and troy is out cold and uh and i i jumped down and, and the, <laughs> thinking he's dead right and the trainer said hey it's all right it's, it's you know he had a pretty a traumatic injury here and and you put the whole leg into this ice water and there's a little bit of a shock a little bit of trauma here and uh so and the the trainer's there and, and troy is coming kind of coming around and uh and he looks at us and we're leaning over and especially me and he goes he goes hey what's up or what's going on and and the trainer said hey here's what happened you sprained your ankle and marv did this and you just you you fainted or you passed out whatever troy reaches up grabs me and he says don't tell the boys you know <laughs> kind of weakness that he'd he'd fainted a little bit and uh and he, he, held, he held on and uh i mean i knew that he was tough but uh i mean he was really tough so going back to your dissertation you ended up going to byu right yep and i remember you telling me that you lived in this small cabin up on top of the mountain yeah and just did your dissertation there at what point in time did you know or recognize that you were going to be doing it on John Wooden? Was it something that came over time or? Wait, did, did, that I would be what, Matt? That, sorry, that you were going to be doing it on John Wooden and his yeah. principles and philosophies. Yeah, I didn't know, uh, you know, the coursework was going okay, but not great. That I, I had, you know who Stephen Covey is? Yeah. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I had him and... Uh, it was great and uh, coursework was fine, but I couldn't really get going on a, a topic and uh, for my dissertation and a little bit intimidating because here I am, I'm pretty far along, I need to get going on this. And then uh, I went to the chair and I said, hey, you know, help me out here. And he, and he goes, well, why are you here? What, what do you really want to know? And I said, I just want to know how the great coaches coached. And uh, so he said, well, we could do somewhat of a historical study, um, but it'd have to be somebody significant like uh, Naismith or Newt Rockney or whatever. And I said, how about John Wooden? And uh, he said, fine. And uh, so I got pretty excited and I, and I uh, the next couple of days I made up a list of, uh, of things to say that coach once I got a hold of them uh, on what I wanted to do. And I was, it was kind of like if you can imagine a first date, you you know, you want to map things out and have it go, go the way you want it to go. And uh, but I, I wanted to get everything out before he said no. And uh, and I said, hey, Coach Wood, and this is Marv Dunphy and so on and so forth. And I had to introduce myself. And he said, he goes, Marv, he says, of course, I, I know you. We met uh, near the outside of the gym at the near the pool at Pepperdine, whatever. And all of a sudden I had to find out, well, where, where do I go next? You know, cause I was going to spend some more time introducing myself, but uh, he, he was great. And what a, 
what what a great find for me, you know, to do my dissertation on him. Yeah, that would be. Had, at that point in time, were you just spending an incredible amount of time on the phone with him to generate more information for your study, or how were you guys in communication at that point? Yeah, interesting. So what I did, Matt, I, I thought you knew this. I was in, in Provo, in BYU, and I, I went down to, we identified a time, and uh, and I went down to his uh, uh, condo apartment in uh, off of White Oak Boulevard in Encino and uh, and spent several days there. And, uh, uh, and I had it all on these little cassette tapes, you know, and I ran out of those things right away. And I had no idea what I was doing because I had, I think I started with 150 questions about coaching and uh, man, he, he just, I was running out of tapes and I couldn't stay with him for a month. Right. So uh, I had to reduce it down a little bit. That was pretty special. And then I, uh, I then I uh, was lucky enough to meet with every former assistant of his from 1948 to 1975. And, uh, and I said, Hey, what was his philosophy with these items? What did he do? What did you do? Or what did neither one of you do to implement that, uh, those philo uh, philosophies? So it, it was, it was good. And I think, you know, the dissertation turned out okay, but, uh, also what happened is that there'll be times when he would, uh, say I'd prefer to have this, you know, uh, between us and I'd shut off the tape and it, it wasn't any dirt, but he just, uh, was giving me the scoop and, uh, uh but it, it was a special time for me. And, you know, I think, you know, here, you know, uh, yeah, everybody, you know, it seems like in coaching knows of him and has a John Wooden story, especially the people in Southern Cal and, uh, uh, so the, the coaching class, Matt, that I, I did for years here. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, there's a couple of reasons I said, I, 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 I'm not going to do it this year. And I got uh, another guy to do it, Max Rook, a, a social assistant yeah. soccer coach. And uh, so he did some case studies. And one of them was going to be John Wooden. He said, will you uh, join us on a Zoom for this? And uh, we'd be up in Heritage Hall. So it'd be Max and I sitting you know, so far apart working with this class. And I said, Hey, invite John Implement, uh, coach Wooden's great grandson, who's a, on the basketball staff here as director of ops. And so it was neat and we're going along and, you know, I, I've heard most of the Wooden stories, but, um, uh, you know, kind of unique perspective, right? Great grandson. And, uh, so the week that Wooden passed, he, you know, he had visited with him and, uh, he'd been Johnny had visited with coach and, uh, uh, the, I don't know what night of the week it was, but he and his fiance and another couple go to the, the Dodger game, right? 50,000 people there. And the public address uh, announcer comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've lost the giant. We've lost the legend. John Robert Wooden died. And 50,000 people stood up, standing ovation. And this is at a baseball game. And John, you know, kind of knew the greatness of Coach Wooden, but all of a sudden it hit him uh, and it was a special time. I, I thought that was a neat story. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. 
what's do you remember one big thing that you took away from that i mean i'm sure there's a multitude of things that you took away from that dissertation meeting with him but is there one or two things or stories that really resonated with you and you still carry forward today in your life um yeah well every minute was well i, I would say uh, the the first thing that I've uh, that I thought of was after uh, the the end of the first day we went from nine to three right yeah so and I I had to make a plan to get it shorter because I I still had like ninety five more questions to go uh, and I was out of tapes and I, all I could think of is you know what's it's going to cost me to get these tapes transcribed uh, but I knew the first thing that hit home was. I knew that I was in the presence of greatness. And sometimes I think we all uh, get into a situation where you know you hear something and it doesn't fit. It doesn't match. They don't live up to it. But I was uh, even more impressed. And, uh, and also uh, how sincere he was. And, I, and, and actually, that's an interesting question, Matt, because as, as I think of it, I think the skill that he had, he was great with the superior athlete. I think he was great with everybody, but I think uh, sometimes elite athletes can challenge uh, like a, maybe a, a Walton did with him and it doesn't work out well, right? Yeah. Because the coach said, hey, my way or the highway. And, uh, but Wood was pretty sharp to figure that out. Um, but he was such, such a great, great, uh, listener, and you know, you if you if people really listen to you, uh, they show you their respect, right? And uh, boy, he he was so sincere, so genuine, so authentic, and uh, yeah, I that that those are the things that stick out. And then you know, I've often said this: the the thing that caught me uh, on day one was when I asked him about discipline. And, uh, and he went on for, I don't know, you know, quite a while. And, uh, and maybe you've heard me say this before, but if it came from Wooden, he said, discipline is what you do for someone, not to someone. And, uh, and he said, I never wanted to bruise the dignity of the individual being disciplined. And, uh, uh, I thought those were, you know, uh, very special thoughts and, um, uh, yeah, and, and that <laughs> that made me think at the time, day one, I kept thinking as he was saying all these gems, that's going to be on my wall. <laughs> that's going to be on my wall. And, uh, and you know, I could put all, I have 1,300 pages uh, transcribed, and it's triple spaced, and uh, uh, all that stuff could be on my wall. And I, I, I've said this before, I could have wooden wallpaper with what he said, and uh but he, he just, uh, he was ahead of his time. I think some coaches now, you know, uh, a lot of coaches now, uh, fortunately, probably have learned from him and would coach like him the way they uh, would teach or work with young people. But he, I think he was ahead of his time. For sure. I think, uh, for sure, you were telling me about, he had two athletes at UCLA that he loved to coach. And both of them he loved so much because they were the type of athletes that 
not that they thought they were going to miss, but they always went to go get their own rebound. I don't. I can't remember the entire story. I remember you were telling me about this, but he had two guys that he really enjoyed coaching, and it's because they never suspected they were going to make the shot. They were always willing to go get the offensive rebound no matter what, and they just wanted to keep giving back to the team more and more and more. I think it was you that was saying you, you just can't teach guys like that, or you yeah. can't teach. You know, you can't teach that skill. They just innately had it as soon as they walked into UCLA with two guys, which I thought was something that you think about all the time. Obviously, you want kids like that, athletes like that in your gym. But the fact that those were his two favorite and it wasn't Kareem or Bill Walton or all these different, you know, these great guys that came through, kind of like you and Fitzy, I just thought, man, clearly talent means nothing. Just some, not, not that it doesn't mean anything, but your character and your reputation go a long way for people a lot more than your talent ever did. Yeah. You know, I think it's easier uh, to find those types than it is to develop those types or, or, or it's easier to find that than to develop it. Uh, I think it's, it's really tough. Cause then, then you got to go back to, you know, what were you guys like when you were three or four years old, when your personality was being formed, you know, and, uh, and kind of like the way you, uh, I think the way you, you see the world was kind of like, uh, I don't know, formed at, at that age. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember for sure. We, uh, maybe I was talking with Dave Winder, you about this. And, uh, and we were talking about Winder and he said he was the only guy that ever came in and I had to tame him as a freshman. But I would have rather I'd rather tame a guy than try to get all that extra emotion out of somebody. Oh yeah. You know. Oh yeah. But is that just totally? I mean, because Jackson and I have talked about this off camera. Is that you, or do you think most elite coaches feel that way? Feel. That. It, yeah, that you you would rather tame the lion. Oh, yeah. And yeah. try to get him to growl. Yeah, you know what? I, yeah, I, you, you know my philosophy. I think you can have one and a half knuckleheads in your team. You can't have two, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I think, you know, uh, certain behaviors we can fix as coaches. If somebody gets angry, we can fix that. If uh, somebody is, you know, a knucklehead or, uh, we can kind of work with those guys. The, um, the the tough guys, I think, for all of us is when there's no passion, there's no drive, and uh, you know, the, maybe the opposite of that is they're moody, kind of mopey. But if there's no drive, no passion, man, you, it, help me, Rhonda. That's tough. I think you agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And with Winder, it was uh, Winder was squared away, but I think he got a little. Uh, you know, what I, what I shared with them is, hey, you know, who's going to lead this team, you know, to, as we compete for a national championship? And he said, Sean Rooney, right off the bat, you know, <laughs> Rooney was the man. And uh, and I said, no, you are. And it, it was like I, I was going to bring him in quite a bit and say, hey, you know, give him the tools uh, to be, be a, a leader in a sense. And uh, because I said Rooney's just going to flip the coin and kill every ball, right? 
And then Winder, uh, he got a little uh, enamored with that and a little too frisky in that he was uh, demanding more of his teammates than he was of himself. And, uh, uh, but that, you know, that changed really quick. And uh, he, he was and is a, is a, a great leader. Was it, uh, is this true? I think Dave Hunt told me this. Or that Rooney. If David Hunt told you it's true. <laughs> is it true that Rooney won, he either, did he lose one game of deep court in his four years at Pepperdine? It wasn't deep court, Matt, per se. It was uh, that little servers versus passers. Uh, you know, okay. and, uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I, I I don't ever remember him losing, and I've asked him in front of uh, actually the, the volleyball camp. I said, "Hey, in your four years at Pep, how often did you lose this drill?" And he's kind of humble, right? And he just you know zero, never. And I would I would load him up with you know uh, a pretty challenging group, but uh, he, he, yeah. So in order to win that, you you have to pass pretty well. And you have to serve in, and and he did. Rooney was one of these guys that uh, uh, that knew the probability of success for everything that he did, and he would serve in, and he would hit in, and he would battle. And uh, you'd say that's pretty simple. That's what everybody does, but not everybody does that. Yeah, he did it at an incredibly high level too. What did, he hit it? He hit at the most ridiculous clips as an O one. A guy would hit over four hundred in a season while averaging six points a game. Yeah. That's unbelievable. I was actually I went into I don't know why I went into the record books a couple weeks ago and I saw George Romain was the same way. He hit at an incredibly high clip and was scoring nine, ten points a match or a set. Yeah. He's also him and Tom Sorensen for the two guys that stood out. And I thought, wow, this is unbelievable that these guys can do that. Yeah. Yeah, if you, uh, I could, uh, I, I shared a couple of uh, the little uh, stat sheets of uh, when Romain was here in Sorensen. Uh, I think I shared them with a, a few guys and, uh, uh, and I sent it to Karch and, you know, he was, uh, Tom Sorensen, 52 for 100, you know, or, you know, 48 <laughs> out of 75. And, and they were, uh, yeah, there was a few of them where I, I would just say, look at the number of swings and 100 swings. And, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, the game is uh, a lot shorter now, a lot different. And, uh, going, so going back to the, the Olympic team, was it, I mean, it must, I remember talking to Stark about this and he said, every win wasn't, it wasn't fun. It was so just, wait, which, uh, which Olympics? The, the 88 team. Yeah. yeah. I remember talking to Stork about this and he said, it was never fun. That wasn't a fun team. Everything was just a relief. He said, when we won the Olympics, it was a relief. Yeah. So he almost wanted to start crying. He's, I think he started crying because he was relieved that it was finally over and the pressure oh. could go going in as a coach as the new coach as the new head coach 
having already won a gold medal the year before with somebody different, was there a tremendous amount of stress on you as well? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Matt, the, the stress that, uh, or the pressure that I felt then is, wasn't any different really for me than what I felt all along the way in that, uh, are we doing what we need to do to be good? Am I doing what we need to do to get these guys to train at the level we need to in order to be good? And uh, um, that that's kind of like the, the good pressure that I've always felt. And uh, uh, a little bit of the expectation, you know, that we had won a gold and, you know, there's only three or four guys from that gold medal team that are coming back. And uh, so the, the focus was on, you know, uh, developing a good team, but a few a few unique characters in our Timmons and uh, and Karch uh, and and Buck, uh, pretty good nucleus. So um, yeah, I uh, when when we won it, there was yeah, I, I was just pleased that we didn't mess it up. You know, we, we were pretty good. You know, uh, for that those four years and. Uh, I was a beneficiary of, you know, uh, Doug Beal and uh, his staff. They, Doug was the guy that started all this stuff. And, uh, uh, and I, like I said, I, I felt like, you know, is, you know, don't screw it up, but it, it wasn't, uh, I was able to sleep at nights, you know? <laughs> yeah. How important was, cause you got, I mean, obviously some really key players in that. And then you bring in Stork and some new guys. How important was role clarity for that team moving forward in those four years? Yeah, that was huge. Well, I think, I think it actually going back to Stork, he came in and, and here were some guys that, you know, uh, demanded perfection. And, and Jeff uh, shared this with me. He said, hey, I didn't feel like it was a really good setter until – years later when I wanted in Italy, you know, then all of a sudden things came uh, complete, but came around, but he, uh, cause he set and hit when he was here at Pep and uh, then he, he, you know, he became a real good center. And uh, I'm sorry, your question is? How important was role clarity on that team? Role clarity. Yeah. It's important for every team. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, part of coaching is have the courage to make the tough decisions and, uh, and do that early and do it often. Um, yeah. And I, I, I would often say, Hey, here's your role as I perceive it. It's mandatory. You accept your role as I perceive it. Otherwise you can't be here. And then we start, you know, going from there with guys and, uh, I, I think you got to have the, uh, those uh, conversations uh, early and often, and uh, uh, it's it's huge, you know. I and I think some coaches uh, use the art of delay, you know. Just I'm going to just let things happen and, and hope they work out. And uh, the kids, uh, you know, young people know if you care and how you feel about them and. Uh, uh, I mean, all people, but, you know, young athletes, uh, for, for sure. And, uh, and I, you know, along the way, I think I, I haven't been, uh, uh, opposed to, you know, uh, bringing an athlete in here and say, Hey, uh, 
I had one really tough conversation and a, a few of these, but one really tough. And I said to this guy, I said, Hey, cause he was not telling me the truth and he was into things he shouldn't have been into. And I said, Hey, I don't believe in you uh, uh, as a player in these, uh, in these ways and as a person in these ways. And, uh, but you're going to get your degree and, uh, and you're going to be part of this team. And, uh, and, but because he knew, and I knew, and I think I even asked him, I said, how much do you think I, I care for you? And he goes, not much. And, and I, you know, we had, and it, but it was, he knew exactly how I felt. And, uh, uh, but we, we had that tough conversation and, uh, we went on and, uh, he, he did fine. And, uh, but you, you know, uh, you can't, the, the phrase I like is you can fool a fool, you can count a con, but you can't kid a kid. They know, uh, they know exactly how you feel about them. So. Coach, when you would recruit, would you start that role clarity in the recruiting process? Like yeah. maybe as you were offering a spot on the team or a scholarship? Yeah. Oh yeah. Here's where we, here's where we see it. And, and here's where we see potential for growth and how you can fit in. And, uh, and the most important thing, Jackson, is I think it's how in the recruiting process up front, it's a little bit of a honeymoon, right? It's like, how does it end for them? And, uh, and my, what I always did, and I'm not saying we were perfect, is I wanted it to be better at the end than it was at the beginning. And, uh, and wanted it going like this versus, uh, now it's, you know, it's uh, not going so well. Yeah. Yeah. I and it, Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I was going to say the, the, uh, th these roles can change, you know, uh, and the important thing is to give them, uh, athletes are happiest when they're improving, and to give them something uh, to work on that we would both work on and uh, uh, where there, there was an avenue and, uh, and, and then there are times where just, hey, you just, uh, uh, you know, uh, Rob Scott came here and uh, we made a deal when he came. He said, hey, I'll come to Pepperdine and commit right now. If you give me your word that you won't put me in the middle, that you'll uh, train me as an outside hitter. And I said, sure. So we make a handshake deal, right? And he's behind Staverlick and uh, Matt Rigg. And he's not sniffing. He comes to me and he goes, "Hey, he says, uh, yeah, I want to play. Can you put me in the middle?" I said, "No, we made this deal." <laughs> yeah, but you know that role can change, and uh, you know if you know uh, they're working on something, they get better. And uh, but I was pretty slow to change. I wasn't, as you know, I, I didn't. Uh, once somebody was good enough and they're in a role, and, and uh, maybe Matt, when your era, when you were here, we started to have some interchangeable parts, but not too many. And there's a photo on the wall behind me in 76. We went to NC2As with nine players. That's our team photo with nine guys. And one of them, Randy Hansen, was a, you know, uh, short little defensive specialist, whatever. And in the warmups, Harlan wouldn't allow him to hit. You know, this nine guy, because you would take a swing away from Ted Dodd, who got a hundred swings a match, you know, it just, uh, so I, I think the role of clarity, uh, and, and uh, I think that's important. And I was just a little slow to change. And uh, people often ask me if you had, you know, 15 athletes of the same ability, 
would you just train them all equally and give them all equal time? And I, I said, that would be hard for me. I, I like to uh, get a crew out there and then test that crew and stress that crew uh, and, uh, and go from there. It's important that you stress the crew because you get in matches and sometimes you don't side out the level you want to and it uh, there's a little bit of stress and it gets ugly and uh, so you got to have to do that in your training too. Yeah, you're the king of that. You start calling fake nets. <laughs> you know what? You know what Marv did to me once? We were in camp and we're, we're in camp and we're getting worked. Worked. His D Rosh coats buried three balls in the middle of a net to start off plus five. <laughs> we're at minus 15. Then somebody, then there's this a multitude of hitting errors. We're at minus 21. Okay. To start off plus five. It's the worst position you could ever be in. So then D Rosh says, Don't worry, I'll redeem myself. I'll redeem myself. Give me the ball. Give me the ball. So I think I waited until we got to negative one. And then I decided to give D-Raws the ball. Mind you, the last 20 balls I've given to Mike Adi now. Because this guy is, I've never seen a guy with a faster arm and I've never seen a guy who hits 20 balls in a row and is getting stronger. Yeah. Right? So we get, I'd set D-Raws. D-Raws buries it. Marv goes, net, minus five. <laughs> I, said, what? I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And he goes, oh, we're having fun here. We want to watch Mike. <laughs> so then the next 10 balls, I sent Mike Dean out. And the kids were loving it. Marv was – he started just giving us free balls because everybody was just enjoying watching Godino bury balls. That's a favorite time of uh, – uh, actually – I think it's an honor to get in there and to get out of it and to uh, be pushed. And uh, you know what happens with that, Matt, you, uh, and you, you've probably seen this, is when somebody's working really hard and they slip and they fall and this and that, and they, you know, they're not barfing, but they see that they're kind of like being pushed, is that the kids watching uh, laugh at it. Yeah, and it, it happened every year or every camp and, you know, at, and probably to give those guys a break, I would, you know, lecture and I'd say, hey, these people are out here, they're in the arena, they're giving, this isn't funny, you know, and kind of like, it's a teaching moment. And then they started to pull for them. Then the guys would get all macho and want, want to go. And uh, that was fun. So you do that with freshmen, because I remember you did it with Josh and I, and I think we were just nervous. And Josh is giggly bits as soon as he gets a little bit nervous. And he started laughing because I, I don't remember who was getting worked. And he stopped and he turned and he looked at Josh and a little bit of me. And you called us out for it. And you said, guys are working hard. And you're over here laughing at them, you know, like chumps. And I remember Josh's face went from smiling. And all of a sudden he was in his shell. He's like, oh, shit, he's going to work me next. And the next guy that got worked was Josh. But after that, we knew. But it was just an understanding of this guy's working his butt off. Yeah. Cheer for him. Don't laugh at him. Cheer for him. Shag balls. Keep the gym clean. And then he'll get out of it even faster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So then I, I've noticed that now. How uh, just doing those little things, feeding the coach, 
things like that really help. It actually ends up helping the guy. Is somebody, you know, your coach isn't getting frustrated over there and starts taking it out on your poor friend. Marv, I have a question for you. Um, so I've known a lot of players that have played for you all the way from all American guys to guys that didn't see a lot of time. Um, what was so special about Max States? That he could wake up at 3 a.m. and hit a jump serve at 70 miles an hour and it would be in. That guy, uh, you're talking about having all the skills. He had all the skills and uh, uh, technically a good model. He and Bo Daniels at my camp, I would, I'd have them in every demo for every skill. And uh, yeah, it, it's, and you know what? He could do it over and over and over and over. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, uh, where he got it, you know, I don't know if he got it from Bo in Santa Monica Beach Club or whatever that was. Uh, but for me, uh, technically, he was good. And he uh, a little bit like Eric Sato, I'd throw him in and say hit it and, uh, and he would hit it. Yeah. What, what's your memory of him? Uh, I, I was at SMBC when he was coming up, I was coaching there while, while I was at Pierce and I think the first time I met him, he was a 14-year-old playing for Rich. Um, and then post-college, we just kind of became buddies. Um, yeah. I don't see him super often, but just a, I think a very unique person. And yeah. I noticed that he got on the all-decade list for you guys at Pepperdine. Yeah. And I think it's really cool that he wasn't the – he wasn't a full-time starter at any point. He wasn't a getting kills or anything, but he was still super valuable to the program. Oh yeah. Yeah. Guys like him are worth their weight in gold. And, uh, and he, you know, it's just, he was a machine, a serving hitting machine and, uh, just great arm and hand control and, uh, and a, a good guy, you know, just, uh, uh, just a real good person to have in the program. Marv put him through the ringer at camp also. Another guy that got put through the ringer. Is I think Max take... told me about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had to do – we have to go through all these defensive sequences, right, of, hey, here's how you tomahawk, here's how you pancake, here's how you dive, all these things. And Marv, I won't mention the guy's name, but he was a gold medal setter. And he – I remember on my recruiting trip, he said, don't ever play defense like this guy. He's a scaredy cat. Is he – before he starts moving, he takes three steps back to go forward. So I always remember that. And so Max and I were out there doing defense and how to sprawl and all these things. And Max knows how to dive because he dives on his chest and he dives really well when he has to pancake and stuff, but he doesn't, he didn't know how to take a step forward yet. <laughs> so he would get scared. He'd get scaredy cat feet and he would kind of go backwards to go forwards. And so Marv kept him out there for probably three minutes, just hitting balls right in front of him. Take a step, take a step, take a step, take a step. And finally he took the step and the ball hit his thumb and just went right into the rafters. And Marv goes, that's what I'm talking about. Next guy out. <laughs> and from then on out, every time a ball went in front of Max, he always took the step. He never dove anymore, which I thought was really cool. 
that he that I mean it took him a while but it clicked and then it stuck forever. He was awesome. Put him through the ringer, poor guy. Uh, so then moving forward, so then you come back. Why did you end up leaving the Olympic team? Was it by choice or? Uh, you know what? They, they had talked to me about uh, to keep going, but uh, then we we played, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 matches a year. We were full-time and it was, uh, you know, and half of those matches were, uh, in you know, home matches were anywhere in the United States. It wasn't necessarily, we were based in San Diego. It wasn't home. It was, you know, we were gone a lot and uh, Alex was young and, uh, and it just, you know, had to have somewhat of a normal lifestyle. And, uh, yeah, it was, we were, things were going pretty well, but, you know, Pepperdine's a good place to work too. And that, the plan was uh, going into that, it was after the Olympics to yeah, come back to, to Pepperdine. Pepperdine gave me a, a leave uh, to do that. And uh, Pepperdine's been really good for me, uh, and to me, I should say, uh, in that they allowed me to go away and come back. And uh, in this day and age, I, I don't know if, uh, too many organizations are as loyal as they've been to me. For sure. So it wasn't the, uh, uh, we had had one conversation or whatever about keep going with USA Volleyball, the leadership, but uh, um, that that wasn't my plan, you know. Are you planning on going to Tokyo? Uh, you know what, I think uh, a couple things. One is that um, I think they're only going to have domestic fans there they're not going to have international fans you guys heard anything about that they have yeah that's my guess and uh also the the delegations i think are going to be smaller uh and i uh i basically i just go as a spy you know and uh uh i don't uh i don't i don't know it's uh if if uh if i could be productive i would go uh if you know cards and have pretty good friends uh but if I could help him in any other way, and if the delegations are smaller, whatever, um, so be it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think. Hurt. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I think the games are going to go. I mean, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty uh, optimistic that they're going to pull it off. Yeah, there was a, I don't know if a fake report is what you should call it, but there was a report that got proved untrue that they said it was canceled a few days ago, but the IOC came out with a statement and said that we're, we're getting them going. We're taking precautions. Yeah. They're doing everything they can. Yeah. How was coaching a player of the caliber of Karch? Was it harder or easier than coaching just a normal athlete? I think somebody of that caliber would be, I don't know if it would be easier because you know how much they're willing to give and sacrifice to be the best possible version of themselves or to be harder because they're, I mean, that guy's really gnarly. Yeah, no, he, uh, uh, yeah, you talking about guys that had uh, the ultimate respect for the sport and, uh, and the team process and everything about it. And, uh, 
I, I know this, uh, that he, uh, and, and I think it's the, the elite athletes uh, like him, uh, you can't just go to them with emotion saying, hey, do this because I said so. And, uh, you, you know, they wanted to know why, what was behind it. And, uh, and logic uh, was important uh, for them. And uh, yeah, so I, uh, you know, he had, uh, he, yeah, he was, he was a tiger. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I felt, um, yeah, I, I, I never felt like he, he was tough to coach in any way other than, you know, I better be good because he's good and there's a standard to be met, you know. Uh, yeah, the, he was, but, I, the, you know, it was like that for uh, Dvorak and uh, Berzins and Karai and Buck. And, and I think a lot of that is, you know, like that happened early on. It didn't happen, you know, I don't think at UCLA or with USA team, I think Karch was a tiger when he was, young and uh, growing up in Santa Barbara and same thing with some of those other guys. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty fun time. And uh, uh, it, it, those, those guys were, uh, it was a, a good draft, you know, with all those guys. And uh, we hadn't had much success with men internationally. And then Doug uh, and uh, his staff got it going. Pretty awesome. Was it, was the change from now being around all these incredibly high level elite athletes to university, was it a tough adjustment at the beginning or was it easy to just say, Hey, I'm back home. I'm back at Pup. Yeah. You know, uh, not, not too much different. You know, uh, some guys, you know, were just at different stages in their development, their career. And, uh, uh but I, I think it. Uh, I, I think coaching is coaching. I think that some of the same, you know, uh, dynamics, you know, would happen at with almost any level or any gender, you know, like males or females and young or old. And uh, there's always little things that happen that uh, have to be addressed and fixed within teams. And it's just I think the the difference is that. Uh, you know, they're just further along in their, their careers, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the guys that play pro and on the national team. For sure. Yeah. How was um, that 92 team? I don't know why out of all the teams that have won a championship, the 92 team is the one that has always stood out to me is you guys had one horse and I don't know why he's always forgotten, but then there's Dane. And it always sounded like, to me, Dane was the one that kind of held that group together. And he was fierce from what you've told me. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, there was, yeah. He, he, he's one of these guys, you know, like Stavrlik or like Karch, like Rennie, that uh, if you made a stupid play or if you hit it out or served out there, there was hell to pay and you know he would he would he would tear into them pretty good and uh uh yeah the the guys uh they knew yeah and he 
Yeah, he, he was. Uh, uh, I think that's what made him is that you know he he just wouldn't allow for errors. You know. Yeah, that seems like the most aggressive team out of all the teams that won a championship. Because I remember, I, maybe it was Chip that told me, if a guy made an error, he'd walk up to him and say, "Hey, was that that good?" And act like a nice guy. Then he'd punch him in the gut, you know, <laughs> and demand that that ball has to be hit in if that set's good. But that group sounds like an incredibly aggressive group of men to be coached. I I think most teams that uh, win it also, you know, they 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 kind of uh, do things from within, you know, to uh, hold, you know, the, the term now is hold each other accountable and. Uh, I don't think they were thinking that way then, but that's what, you know, I think that's what good teams do. And uh, what, what's neat about teams and uh, uh, like I said, they're really special. And, and, you know, we spent a good part of this talking not about winning championships, but about practice and all those times, you know, when you're together, uh, they're so special and that they'll remember. And in fact, on the video, uh, so we, did you look at any practices on, on the video that we sent yet? Uh, I looked at, I think, only our practices. I didn't know there were practices from before me. I knew yeah. they were from 2018, but I, I didn't know anything earlier. Yeah. So the, some of the best feedback we uh, received on that, sending all the videos over the you know, 30, 40 years, whatever, is from the practices. Where for the most fun. <laughs> that, the whole crew is there, yeah. But what I was going to say with, with teams, it's, uh, and I'll just tell you this one story. Uh, I don't know what kind of reunion it was, but we brought back the 85 team, right, that won it. And they played the field at the alumni match, right? And here's all these, you know, young guys, whatever. But the 85 guys won the match, and it was uh, real competitive, and there was just uh, a, a lot of pride uh with the crew that you went through. And I think, you know, had we done that right now, if we did it with the 78 guys, you know, they would uh, have this, you know, uh, pride in, you know, who they were and who they did it with. And, uh, you know, kind of neat to see. For sure. I agree. I don't think it takes a championship to have a great group of guys or anything. I mean, we didn't, we never won it, but for some reason, our generation is just still, really close yeah that's neat you know so yeah i think going the distance probably helps because for some reason winning keeps people pretty close and tied and something special that you can share but yeah i think if you just have a good generation you've gone through some stuff together you you stick it out jackson i got a question for you what's the toughest thing that you have to do in coaching toughest thing um that maybe that you've done or that it just what, what what's tough you know no, I, yeah no i think uh well, I've, I've been a head coach at lower levels but now i'm an assistant um but i think what we were talking about earlier of getting a full entire group to one buy into a common goal and the role clarity that comes along with that i think is uh, real difficult. Um, 
and something I've definitely struggled with in the past and something I try to put my attention towards. Um, but I think that's the, to simplify it, getting a full team uh, kind of rowing in one direction. Hmm. What about you? What do you think? Well, just along those lines, I, I uh, yeah, I think if everybody is doing something stupid, you got to write the ship. But uh, I think most of uh, Matt, you'd probably agree with this. Most of the, the headway that I made is on an individual basis. It's not so much, uh, you know, fixing the whole team uh, and doing team speeches. Matt, what's the longest I ever talked to our team? other than a scouting report? Oh, the longest I can ever remember you speaking is after we didn't get the bid in 2014. The longest you ever talked to us. And it was three sentences. Yeah. So my, my point is, is that I, I think most of my headway was done one-to-one, uh, -one, but uh, toughest thing. Uh, Yeah, I, maybe, <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, you get these situations where, um, uh, I remember, uh, we were going to play Cuba at the, um, in the USA cup, we played them in the USA cup and they beat us. Right. And uh, at the end of that, that USA Cup, they asked us for a copy of the video of that match. And, uh, uh, but also at the World Championships, uh, which were gonna happen later, uh, it was gonna be the Russians, USA and Cuba, and only two of us would come out of the second round. And uh, we had had, uh, oh, some uh, tough uh, times with Cuba where we didn't, see eye to eye on uh, how we're going to, you know, do things, how we're going to play, where we're going to play, when we're going to play. And even during the match, there were times that weren't very smooth, but we, I think I failed to make the tough decision because we decided late at night not to give them a, a tape of the match where they beat us. And uh, we uh, drew straws to see who was going to give them a bogus tape and Gary Moy, he drew the, the short straw. And uh, uh, that was tough to do. And here we are like 40 years later and I still remember not having the courage to make the tough decision. I, uh, we should have done it and either we're good enough or not. But uh, I think those decisions are, uh, those are tough ones because you can uh, kind of justify, well, here's what they didn't do with us. And, and yet we were kind of like going down the same road. And uh, if I had to do it again, I would do it a little bit differently. Sure. But with kids, I mean, it's uh, kids and people. Um, um, I, I don't remember, nothing stands out as, as uh, other than, uh, like I said, the pressure of, you know, like, hey, uh, are we doing what we need to do to get them to train at the level they need to, to be good. And, uh, so that's all I got. All right. Um, now that you're 
you said earlier that now that you're in the stands watching, um, how do you like it? How do you like not being uh, in charge of lineups and telling setters who to set and all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, how do you like just being a fan? Yeah, you know, uh, because I'm around, uh, uh, you know, I didn't completely just stop cold turkey and go away. I'm still uh, see him practice and I, I see him play matches. And uh, um, yeah, I, I think that we served in and hit in every time when I was coaching. Now these guys are serving out all the time. <laughs> yeah. No, it, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I'm still kind of, you know, uh, still involved a little bit you know uh emotionally when i see it you know but it's different you know uh to you know be involved uh, so many years where you have control and then when you're in this stand the further you get away the less control you have of what's what's going on and uh so i noticed when you know uh a few times hey i would probably run this or probably make this up here or that but uh, it's all good you know all right, and I need a favor from you. I'm at the University of Nevada, and Craig Choate is volunteering with our team. He's retired for a few years now. Um, give me some dirt on Craig, because that guy gives me a hard time all the time. I need some ammunition. Oh, man. Yeah, pretty solid guy. Yeah, not, <laughs> not, not too much dirt for, for Craig, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I'd have to think on that. Yeah, yeah, good guy. Yeah, well, I'll, okay, give me a minute here. I'll come up with something. So we, David and Alex, my daughter, and I go to uh, Northern Arizona to do uh, some sort of coaching clinic that Craig and the, re uh, the region had set up there. And uh, so we fly all day and, you know, whatever, drive and and we get there and Craig takes us down to Sedona and which is, I don't know, south of Flagstaff. And then we drive back and, and, you know, I'm ready to eat the doorknob. We haven't had anything to eat. And, uh, and I said, Hey, stop at this, uh, all you can eat Chinese place and do something. And Craig said, no, I have, uh, uh, burritos, you know, I, I you know, cook these things up. I've been soaking the beans and so on and so forth. So we get to his house and, uh, the tortillas, whatever, are they're supposed to be in the deli or the refrigerator. He had them in his, uh, you know, in with the, the plates and whatever. And there's mold, they're stuck together, right? And uh, so those are the tortillas. And the skillet, he's going to cook this chicken, right? The beans have been soaking for months or whatever, but he's going to cook this chicken and he has the, the, the pan is on as hot as you can get it and the chicken's frozen, right? Puts it in and it's burned on the outside and still raw on the inside. And uh, the tortillas, we there was no tortillas because they were moldy. And uh, uh, I remember Alex asking, uh, hey, can I have a PB&J? And, and uh, uh, so I think David and I kind of faked it like, hey, this is a, a good meal here. <laughs> and Alex is having a PB&J. So, Maybe cooking might not be his forte. All right. I'll let him know about that. Coach, I have a question for you. Why why don't you talk to setters? Uh, you mean in what way? 
Well, because when I mean, when I was there, from everybody that I've spent time with that was a setter before me, you never, you, I mean, not that you never, you usually say one thing every four years to them and it's set X, which is set the big guy, whoever the big guy is. You talk to tactically or just? Uh... No, tactically, just tactically. Yeah. You, how come you never come hang out with us? But, yeah. But I remember talking to Leash and Courtney and they said, you're their guy when you're with the national team. So what's the deal? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, uh, Jackson, what, what is he asking right here? He's asking you that when you're in a match or it, you're in practice and during a timeout, you're not talking to the setters, maybe David or Winder are talking to the setters. Why weren't you ever talking to the setters? Is that your question, Matt? That's my question. Yeah. I speak Matt West. <laughs> you know, what? I, I I would probably I, I've always uh, kind of gravitated toward the serve serve block defense side, and uh, and usually had somebody else working with the setters or and or doing that in training and. Uh, Maybe with Alicia and with Courtney, that was at the World Championships that we won. Uh, I took the place of somebody, a setting coach, and uh, uh, Card said, "Hey, will you work with these setters?" And so I was on the other side of it, and uh, yeah. But it was the same thing with them, you know. When you, uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, when you start off with young people, it's. Uh, you, you show them and you tell them, and then there's kind of like guided discovery. And then it, you know, eventually it gets to mutual exploration and, uh, uh, and respect. And that was certainly the case with them. And, um, when I chat with them, it was quite a bit, quite often open-ended. Hey, what do we need more of or less of here? And they were, you know, uh, veterans and yeah, went pretty well story that Courtney told us was, I think it was a match at World Champs that year. They were a timeout, like pretty tense game, maybe the end of a set. And the setters come to you during the timeout. And you just say, man, look at this arena. This is really cool. We're lucky to be here. I thought, I thought that was so cool and just like great time for them to take a breath and kind of re reset a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of like who they were. You know, it wasn't like me coming in with some voodoo, you know, like, what is this guy, you know, coming out of left field? If I had said that to the cards or whatever, I wouldn't say that to him. You know, it was like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember saying that exact thing. But, uh, yeah, we would, it was, uh, uh, we sorted it out pretty good with those two. And uh, it was, they were, they were uh, pretty special. And I saw that Courtney is on the pep staff now. Yeah, she's volunteering uh, with uh, the, the Waves, and uh, I think that that's a good call uh, for her. She'll say, hey, here's this coaching side of it, and it's over, what, in, in May, and see two A's in May, and then she can start looking for uh, where she wants to land and uh, what she wants to do. But I think she, uh, right when she finished, a lot of times the uh, the players on the U.S. team, hey, this Olympics is over, this World Championships is over, I'm going to jump right into coaching. And I think she uh, did jump right in. She did gold medal square uh, 
clinics and camps a little bit and then uh, I'm sure would speak at various places and and now maybe it's a time uh, where she wants to coach and uh, yeah it comes pretty easy to, to her and, and Matt also I think uh, Matt you uh, as soon as you're done you know playing uh, you're going to be a great coach and uh, um, it's in your blood that's for sure it's definitely in my blood coach you always say uh, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You always ask guys that. I think there's one, you said there's one guy that's ever said I'm getting worse. And his name is Jeff Stork. Do you remember that moment? Uh, yeah, I don't, man. You remind me of a bad time. <laughs> yeah. So, Do you remember? No, so I'm, I'm just thinking of it from a coaching perspective. When he said that to you, I mean, that has to be pretty defeating to hear from one of your best players, but what did you immediately think of in order to try to help him? Yeah. So, uh, when I, so that I tell you when that happened, I came back from getting my doctorate and the cupboard was kind of bare, right? We didn't have much talent and I, uh, recruited him pretty late and, uh, and we went back and forth whether he's going to set or hit. And, uh, so we start the fall off and we're, you know, I'm, uh, trying to bring all these other guys uh, up to his level. And uh, so in a meeting, I said, hey, either you're getting better or getting worse. And uh, and he goes, well, I'm certainly not getting any better. And boy, that was a, a shock. And, I, and I, uh, I didn't expect that because I thought things were going okay as we're, you know, getting these other guys, uh, that I was getting these other guys better. And, uh, uh, but that, uh, you know, it was a learning moment for me. And, uh, and I, yeah, I, I made sure that we identified some things that, uh, and some areas that he would want to work on. And, uh, that was a, yeah, it was a, it was a good time, you know, it was eye opening, you know. For sure. I was talking, we had an interview with Mary Weiss the other day and the, Matt, can I interrupt you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think so. In a sense, you know, I, I, I failed in that situation. You know, you could look at it like that. And, uh, uh, but that was a, a learning moment. And I, and I think the, um, I'm not putting myself in this category, but it kind of reminded me of that the, uh, I think guys like Fitz, you know, they, uh, they, they learn from their successes, they learn from their failures, and they, 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 kind of keep them in the same category, right? That it, they don't go up and down. There's no, no peaks and valleys, but they, they'll, they'll learn from it and they'll reframe it. And uh, uh, I think that's important uh, to do that. I think some people do that easier than others. Do you, when you have a team that you know has a, a chance of truly competing for a national championship and a team that you know is probably a middle of the pack MPSF team, I'm not saying that you coach them differently, but is your attitude different in when you're thinking about each one of those teams and knowing how much you need, how much stress you have to put on each one of them or anything like that? Because I, for me, I remember how, not that you were significantly different or anything between my junior year and my freshman year, but our freshman year, we didn't really have the team to push for a national championship, whereas my junior year, we for sure did. 
and I could feel that you were pushing a little bit more and there's a little bit more pressure on us that you were giving. Is that just, I mean, am I crazy to think that or is it, is that accurate? Uh, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't, uh, I don't think I've consciously um, coached too much differently. In other words, I, I think I remember in, I don't know, probably the 78 team i knew that we you know i knew the rankings that were gonna about to come out and uh and i said because we had been you know third and second and uh uh the two years prior and uh, and i i think i said hey um it wasn't about our expectation i just was addressing our talent and uh, uh when the rankings would come out i th i don't remember exactly how i shared it but uh uh, you know, I, I put it in a light where, you know, uh, here's this external expectation, but it, it matches, you know, what we should feel, uh, so on and so forth. And, uh, I think, yeah, I, I don't, um, I don't remember doing too much with expectations with teams, you know, uh, or treating them differently because I think every, every every practice every season it's uh, you have to establish an identity and uh i i guess i don't feel what you said uh, that you you perceived you know me pushing up you guys more for sure it could have just been us getting older and then coming into those roles is it maddie p and chase ross or whatever might have felt that but us as freshmen we were naive and we just went out there and did the best we could yeah. and then as we got older we probably felt that burden a little bit more of being the ones that are going to carry us and to be the examples for everybody else as well yeah i i would think that yeah that I, my guess is that's the case more so than uh, me expecting or demanding more or something because oh, like you were no you for my four years and the recruiting process all the years that i've known you i don't think you've ever thought about the next day you're no. always really good about being in the moment and for us to be in the moment yeah yeah uh marv i've heard this term a bunch of times from different people all-time great wave what does that mean it means that they're they're pretty uh they're good at uh lots of different things, you know, and not just lopsided uh, as a, as a volleyball athlete, but they're, they're good in all parts of their day and with their teammates. And uh, yeah, there's, uh, I think there's lots of good waves, lots of great waves, but all time great waves are, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're good in lots of different areas that uh, are significant and important. Who's your favorite wave you've ever coached? Yeah, I, you know, it, the, the answer to that is, you know, when you have children, who's your favorite child? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, each, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky uh, that, so people have this, I actually have it, you know, uh, uh, on my computer now, you know, everybody's info, whatever, but for some reason I like to keep this notebook and, uh, 
I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't chat with in some way, shape or form, probably, I don't know, four or five, six guys. And, uh, it's pretty neat. You know, it's extended family and, uh, you know, we shared something and we, we, it's, you know, that relationship is still going or those relationships are still going. So here's the huge, I guess, this is a question I guess I've always had in the back of my mind. How did you establish our culture at Pep? I don't think, I don't know if maintaining it would be as hard as establishing it, or did you just go off what DeGroote and those guys did and kind of made it your own? Yeah, it wasn't, uh, yeah, I, I think that kind of evolved. I, I got some stuff from Bert, but uh, um, and, and I agree with you. I think every program probably has a certain brand, you know, that, you know, hey, here's this team, here's this team, here's what uh, they, they look like, here's what they stand for. And um, I think it just evolved, you know, and uh, but my, my simple answer, I can tell you what culture isn't. It's with all this bonding stuff that uh, people do off the court, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, I think it actually, I think it happens every minute of every day you're together, you know, and, and how things are done and, uh, and how things are addressed. Cause if you let things go, uh, it could hurt your culture, you know, <laughs> and, uh, if you don't address things, you know, that need to be addressed, that could hurt the culture. And if you allow certain behaviors that are counterproductive, uh, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't think Matt, you know, there was any one thing that we've done, uh, or that I've done. Uh, so what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you see uh, or think when you think, hey, I'm a wave and uh, uh, what is that culture like that could be different than other, you know, not to, you know, uh, compare to others, but what's what's different, I guess, is what I'm asking. That's certainly a huge component of it is not comparing ourselves to others. Okay. That's something that you, you implement in to us every day, especially because we've and we had a story, we have a story program, so you can't, you can't compare yourself. You are who you are and you are where you are and the rest is where you're going, I guess. But uh, I think the biggest thing for me, when I think about the waves, I think all of us have a piece of you that we all took away. And it may be something totally different for each one of us, but each one of us has a story that has to do with some form of respect or communicating properly or integrity or identity or whatever it may be. Or washing your hands. Washing yeah, your hands. Or washing your hands so you don't get, you know, the sniffles or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. But we all have some little piece of you. And then I guess that when it's all, when we all come together, there's this incredibly mutual understanding between all of us. Because I talk to Stork and I just think, oh, this, I get this guy. I talk to Johnny Mayer, I think the same thing, Johnny Winder. 
And so whenever I talk to these guys, I just think, oh, you guys make sense. And I think it's because all of us have this little piece of Marv that we just carry. And it just, we just makes us understand one another. And you hear Jackson, I've heard a bunch of people say this. There's a bunch of mini Marvs walking around when they start coaching and everybody gets a little bit of a deeper voice and whatever. And we all kind of go through it in college. Actually, I started recognizing that. And, uh, and then we come out and we are who we are at the end of the day. But for sure, I think we all embody you in some way, shape, or form. Or we, I think we'd like to because we know you're a pretty stand-up guy. Putting the pressure on, I better be good. <laughs> you are good. You've been doing it for a long time. You've been good for a long time. That's what you always tell us: be good over time. Yeah, you know the, the key, Matt, and I. <laughs> There's all this little stuff that I remember Marv say, and I thought that was just a generational thing. Oh, he's been saying this for the last five years, and that's not true. He's been saying it for the last fifty. You know, so that's what makes us all on the same page in that culture. Yeah, but the, uh, uh, yeah, the, you don't go too far unless you are with good people. And uh, I think that uh, that's pretty important, you know, to bring good people in. And, and uh, I, I think if I was running a business, I would make sure I had good people. And, uh, so that, that's been fun. What is it that you always say about coaching? It's the one job in the world where you can surround yourself with, you get to pick the people around yeah. you. The way I say it is <laughs> the best thing about coaching is you get to pick the people you go through life with. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's true. And, uh, yeah. Pretty lucky. I got one more question for you. So usually on this podcast, we ask people who know you, what's your, what's your best Marv story or what's your favorite Marv story? And I want to ask you, what's your favorite Matt West story? It could be on or off the court, whatever it is. Wow. You know, I, I uh, maybe I'll, I'll throw out a couple of things and then we'll, we'll uh, you know, I'll evolve to the, the number one uh, favorite. But when I first, uh, Matt, when I first saw you play and you were with, uh, you know, your team was like cuckoo's nest. You know, there's here's this guy, you know, and there's, there's this guy, and then there's this guy, this guy. And, you know, none of them could play. And, uh, and they were all different uh, shapes and sizes, whatever. And, uh, and, but I just saw, uh, you know, you were so far ahead of the curve in, in your ability to, to play uh, and to give those guys what they needed, you know, either it's a location or a set or a, a pat on the back. And that was my, you know, uh, first introduction, first thing I saw. Um, Yeah, and, and actually, you know what? That would probably be something that carried over. And uh, so I saw you with the club kids, and then I went up and you were playing that men's team up in your practice. Do you remember that when I came up and watched it? And it was the same thing. You know, you had the same crew, 
and uh, it was the, the way that uh, you're really comfortable in uh, raising, working with them. And, you know, they're all over the place. You know, the ball was hit in the ceiling that, uh, that they tried to hit in the court, whatever. And uh, I think you put them at ease. And, uh, and it's the same way you, you were here. So it's not one incident. It's probably uh, the way, you know, that he worked with... Uh, his teammates and uh, maybe a week from now, I'll just say, I remember this time when he cheated at Uno or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a fun team. Those are the fun teams. Yeah. Let's see how much you can get out of them. We said teams are special. Yeah, and you know when you know so, Jackson, you you're still you're coaching, but as you go along, at some point in time, I think there's this feeling when you're in it that you kind of know that it's cool, and yeah, here are these guys I'm going through life with, and uh, uh, but you know the, those they're not going to last forever. It, you know things are going to change, and uh, I'm still around teams, and uh, but. Uh, a lot of people move on, you know, they, they leave that behind. And, and it's uh, what I've gathered along the way is I've, I've always felt that they're special. And then uh, when, uh, whenever I interact with the, the, you know, these guys that, uh, you know, uh, that have played here, I, I, I know it was special for them too. It's pretty cool. I think I would go along the same lines as you. Marv, if I was trying to, I'm trying to think of my favorite Marv story. And I think it's just every time we hung out in the office. And they all kind of combined into one huge office visit that lasted, I don't know how many hours I spent up there, but yeah, or just get, man, we used to call Sato or Judy or whoever would take our calls. Hey, now we got to call this person. Hey, no. <laughs> hey, you're doing lunch today. Hey, we got to go up here. Let's go talk to Hung Lee. Let's go talk to Lee Katz. Yeah. All right. You know, you got class now. You seem free. All right, let's do this. There's not a lot of on-court things. I mean, a couple, obviously, that stand out. But, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Good times. What else you guys got? Jackie, you got anything? Marv, you got anything for us? Yeah, I think, uh, no, I think we're, I, I'm good. I mean, we got to do this in six months. We got to do this again. You know, I've never, uh, uh, I've been on a, a couple uh, podcasts, whatever, uh, been part of it, but uh I've never listened to one, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. so I'll, I'll get better, and you know, six months from now, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, I'll do some prep, and there'll be some meat to it, you know. Yeah, it would be awesome to have you on again, Mark. Yeah.